Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. Today, Rob is joined by Dr. Jeremiah Johnston and Dr. Craig A. Evans. We introduced Dr. Johnson a couple weeks ago when he joined Rob for a podcast episode that I would encourage you to check out if you haven't already. He's an accomplished New Testament scholar and the president of the Christian Thinkers Society. His associate, Dr. Craig A. Evans, joins Rob as well this week, so I want to tell you a little bit more about him, but there's really a lot to tell. He's the Director of Strategic Studies and the Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University. He's authored hundreds of articles and reviews and has published more than 70 books. Professor Evans has given lectures at Cambridge, Durham, Oxford, Yale, and many other universities, colleges, seminaries, and museums, such as the Field Museum in Chicago and the Canadian Museum of Civilization in Ottawa. He also regularly lectures and gives talks at popular conferences and retreats on the Bible and archaeology, and on Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Evans has appeared many times in television programs on the History Channel, BBC, Dateline NBC, and others. Dr. Evans served as consultant on the National Geographic Society's Gospel of Judas Project and for the Bible television miniseries. He also participates annually in archaeological digs in the Middle East and volunteer teaches at schools worldwide. Professor Evans and his wife Jenny live in Richmond, Texas and have two grown daughters and a grandson. You can visit christianthinkers.com and craigaevans.com to learn more about Dr. Evans and his ministry. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan, and his two guests, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston and Dr. Craig A. Evans. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is um, a very special occasion for me. I'm here at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston with one of my best friends, uh, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, and one of his best friends, Dr. Craig Evans. And Dr. Evans is renowned for his apologetic scholarship. Uh, I've heard him before. Uh, I do not have enough wisdom uh, or background to really conduct a proper interview with him. So I have asked Dr. Uh, Johnston if he will sort of sub in for me. We're sitting, <laughs> I wish you could see us here. We'll post a picture uh, uh, on social media, but we're sitting here in a wonderful little alcove, a bay window, in the library of the Lanier Theology. We, we, it feels like we're in Oxford, doesn't yes. it? And, uh, and so, uh, Jeremiah, I'm going to turn this over to you. I would just like for you uh, and uh, Dr. Evans to share with us some of the exciting recent things happening in Christian apologetics and scholarship, uh, things that, that you and he have been talking about this week as you've been together. Oh, this is exciting, Dr. Morgan, and it's a delight for me to be back on the podcast, and it's a delight to um, just talk with Professor Evans because this is right out of the cut and thrust of your ministry. I know that you care about biblical fidelity, you care about exegesis, you care about sermons really being sermons, mm -hmm. and we have the privilege to be joined today by Professor Craig Evans, who writes commentaries that so many of these pastors and scholars use in their library, um, I'm sure on a very regular basis. And so Professor Evans, it's a delight for me to welcome you. I know that you are the John Bassanio Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University, and you were also a founding board member of our ministry, Christian Thinkers Society. 
you and I have been all over the world together, literally the land of Israel, the United Kingdom. We've seen a lot together, met a lot of people, uh, done a lot of research together. We've also published together, which is really exciting. Uh, but I would like to focus our discussion today on your new book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Why Jesus and the manuscripts? Why are the manuscripts important? What do they even have to do with Jesus for the benefit of our audience. And then I want to talk about some exciting things we've been discussing recently as it relates to biblical archaeology. So let's start with Jesus and the Manuscripts, your new book. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jeremiah, for this opportunity uh, to talk about Jesus and the Manuscripts. There are two main things that I try to do in this book. One of them is, is to speak to how many gospel manuscripts do we have? How many do we have? How old are they? What's their quality? Because a lot of people, just they just don't know. People in the church don't know. Many pastors don't have much of an idea either. And then when a uh, semi-popular book comes out by a well-known skeptic saying that the manuscripts, especially the Gospels, are full of mistakes, there have been, you know, contradictions, you know, one says this, one says something else. There have been changes made driven by... Uh, doctrine, a desire to create orthodoxy or something like that. This has created a lot of confusion. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go through all of the manuscripts, have a couple of chapters that talk about that. How many do we have? What is their quality? And of course, the evidence uh, is overwhelming. We have lots of manuscripts. They're very old. They're very good quality. And then another question closely related to that is, well, how long did the originals last? And the evidence would suggest that autographs of valued manuscripts, it was nothing to last 200 years. Which means that the manuscripts that we actually have from the third century that preserve great portions of the Greek New Testament, they were written at a time when the, some of the autographs were still available. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, it isn't as though an autograph, and by autograph I should explain, mm -hmm is the original writing. And so when Matthew finishes his gospel and lets it circulate, that's what we call the autograph. Because he, as the author, has written it or at least supervised its writing. A professional scribe likely held the pen. And so the finished text meets with his approval. And this is sometime in the first century. Almost all, perhaps all, of the New Testament was written in the second half of the first century. And that's when it began to circulate. Well, Matthew's gospel wasn't just copied once or twice, and then those copies were copied once or twice and so on. So you end up with musical chairs, and after 20 generations, you end up in the third century with the manuscripts that we now have in various places like Oxford or Geneva or Rome or Manchester. No, that Matthew, the original gospel, would have been copied repeatedly again and again and again. In other words, there would be first and second generation copies of Matthew at the end of the second century. And so the idea that the text wildly evolves and moves into whole new directions and who knows what kind of changes are made, that that is simply without foundation. The other thing that I think uh, pastors don't know, and they need to listen to this and assure their congregations, is that the original uh, manuscripts, when they were copied, for, in most cases, they were copied by professional scribes. 
scribes who were hired to make copies because they were simply good at it. They didn't make mistakes, or if they did, they caught them and corrected them. Their handwriting was legible, and that's what made them uh, professional. That's why they were hired. Well, think about it for a moment. A professional scribe who has only a vague knowledge of Christianity, what motive does he have theologically to make any changes? How would he know what orthodoxy eventually will be? Could he possibly know what Nicaea would decide in the year 325? See, there's an anachronism in some of this skepticism. There's the assumption that fourth century orthodoxy is already known by people in some cases who aren't even Christians. When you think about it, it's silly. There's another anachronism at work too. How would any scribe in the second century, whether he's Christian or not, know this is going to be in the New Testament? Mm -hmm. And so when we get these oddball conspiracy theories, this idea that there's an orthodox corruption of scripture to make sure that the writings in the second century on which then our third century copies that do exist are based, that they must be a certain way. Why, it's really a naive anachronism at work. And so it doesn't make any sense if you think through it. People are simply hired, make an accurate copy. That's what he does. And then later, the church recognizes certain gospels, the ones written in the first century, the ones that have credible apostolic connection, the ones that reflect the way life really was in the first century, and scholars, historians call this verisimilitude. Unlike gospels written in the second and third centuries, which lacked verisimilitude, as one scholar put it to me, a textual critic himself, very well known, he said, if all we had was the gospel of Thomas, would we even know Jesus was Jewish? And so this scholarly and popular fascination with these later Gospels really is quite naive and downright silly. So I wanted to set the record straight, and that anticipates the second reason I wrote Jesus and the Manuscripts, and that is to talk about these Gospels outside of the New Testament. First of all, there's no conspiracy. Nobody got together and said, let's keep certain writings out and certain writings in. The earliest Christians recognized the apostolic writings. They recognized the early ones that reflected reality. They became favored. They were the first written, and they were credible. Later writings came along that wanted to change the story, change Jesus into a new image, a more politically correct Jesus, a, a Jesus who perhaps was more tolerant of strange, aberrant ideas that were not part of his original teaching. And this is where the Gospel of Thomas comes from, or the very naive apologetic we see in the one called Gospel of Peter, where Jesus and his cross come out of the tomb, and Jesus' head reaches the clouds. And I know, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, you know all about that because your dissertation was on that very work. And you showed conclusively it's a mid-second century text. It extends in a naive way the apologetic in the Gospel of Matthew. So in this, that's the second reason uh, Jesus, the manuscripts, was written, is to talk about these Gospels that are outside of the New Testament. And some of them are outright fakes. The Gospel of Jesus' wife, which now widely is recognized, I think universally, that it's phony, that it was penned, as I said in one interview I gave a few years ago. I said, this text isn't as old as my grandson. 
<laughs> later I thought well, maybe it was a little over the top, but I, I, I can now say on this authoritative podcast that I've been proven true. The text is at least two years younger than my 17-year-old grandson. <laughs> and other texts are suspected of being modern forgeries as well, written perhaps in the 20th century or something like that. And so I wanted to set the record straight so that pastors, seminary students, but also laity recognize that, you know what? The church made no mistake. The four gospels of the New Testament are the early ones. They're accurate. They reflect the realities of the early first century in Israel. The manuscripts are numerous, the copies that have been made, they're accurate. And that's why we're 99 point something sure of the text. We really don't have any problems where we wonder, did Jesus really say this or did he really do this? What was he really like? There just isn't any reason for that. The book also uh, talks about how Jesus is understood in traditions outside of Christianity. A, a lot of people are confused about that. They don't realize what a high place, what an exalted place Jesus has in the Quran. They don't uh, recognize or know anything at all about the polemic, how Jesus is presented in the Talmud and, and other Jewish writings, and why that, and it all makes sense actually commenting on each other. There's a dialogue, there's a debate going on in what is today Saudi Arabia and uh, parts of Syria over who was Jesus anyway? What did he really do? In fact, how do we explain the resurrection? Mm. And it's fascinating. And the more we understand that, the more Jesus, we realize Jesus made a huge uh, impact. He left a big footprint in the ancient world. And that's even outside of the church itself. Some people might not realize that Jesus' name was so extolled that people that knew almost nothing about Christianity knew that you had to invoke the name of Jesus if you wanted to be healed. We actually have texts from Egypt, and Egypt is the place where we have most of our texts because the climate is perfect for preserving ancient texts, where the name of Jesus is invoked as protection against fever or an evil spirit. And uh, so Jesus is famous even outside the Christian church. And I don't think people uh, realize that. I mean, even at Jewish magic bowls and texts and things like that, the name of Jesus is invoked for protection. So I wanted to uh, survey all that, everything that I thought uh, is important to bring that into the book and talk about it. And of course, there's Greek and there's Hebrew and Latin, but don't worry, everything is in English translation as well. And I hope a lot of people, especially the teachers and the pastors and seminarians, uh, get a chance to see that book. And, and they should go away uh, knowing that, hey, you know, we got it right. We got the right stuff. There has been no big mistake and there's been no monkey business. The text is well preserved. And, and we're talking about the texts that tell the story right about who Jesus really was, what he taught, and what he did. 
This is so exciting, Professor Evans, to hear about uh, Jesus and the manuscripts, and it really is a legacy item for you in so many ways. I know you have over 700 publications, which is really astounding to think about <laughs> and exciting. Uh, and Dr. Morgan, I know you and I have discussed a lot our desire for biblical fidelity, our desire for sermons to be exegetical, mm-hmm. and our desire for the scriptures to be exalted in the local mm-hmm. churches. And so I want, even though you've asked me to kind of guest talk yeah. here. I want you to interject as well with any questions or thoughts that you have for Dr. Evans. Yeah. Look, I have two or three lay questions that I'd like to ask you. And this is, first of all, for both of you. There are still, are there still unstudied, undocumented fragments from this era that could give us maybe further insights as they are dealt with. They're, they're in files somewhere, but they haven't really been cataloged or they haven't been studied. Well, this is a really great question, Dr. Morgan. Um, and Dr. Evans and I have personally been in the Sackler Library together at the same time. It's nothing like you see in the movies, by the way. Um, we have seen fragments numbering over a half million that are right now uncatalogued. So if you want a great job uh, someday with great job security, uh, become a papyrologist, become a classicist, because there are so many fragments that are yet uncatalogued. What would you add to that, Dr. Evans? Well, yeah, that's very true. Uh, It's estimated that 500,000 pages of papyrus, that doesn't mean 500,000 documents, but 500,000 pages, that's a rough count excavated from uh, just this one place, Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, and there'd be thousands of other pages from numerous other locations in Egypt, but Oxyrhynchus was the mother load. Uh, We also find uh, books from antiquity uh, in monasteries mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. are, are quite literally not cataloged. That's one of the reasons uh, Dan Wallace, for example, and right. others will go to Mount Athos in Greece and other places, Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. uh, the Iron Curtain, you know, and, and places in Syria and elsewhere where there are very old books in, in uh, Greek, in Aramaic or Syriac, sometimes in Hebrew or Latin. And so we honestly don't know how many copies of the Greek New Testament, for example, in Greek or in other languages, survive from antiquity. Uh, We have other writings. Now, when people ask, could we still find some fragment, very old fragment, the answer is yes, of course. Uh, The oldest fragment of Mark was published uh, three years ago. The oldest fragment of Mark is just a few verses of chapter one. It was very much in the news and surrounded by controversy. You can make a movie out of it, and uh, and yet there it is, and it dates to the late second century, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the oldest fragment that we know of of the Gospel of Mark. We have, of course, other second century fragments of other Gospels, such as John, mm-hmm. uh, which in another podcast Dr. Johnston referenced P fifty two, a fragment of John chapter eighteen. But we have we have three small fragments mm-hmm. at Marlin College in Oxford. Of Matthew 26. So I wouldn't be surprised in the least in the next few years somebody says, look at this, we have found a fragment of the Gospel of Luke uh, or another fragment of Matthew and it could date to the second century. There it is in one of these Tupperware boxes of which there are hundreds uh, at Oxford and at other locations. And of course, uh, I've seen it with my own eyes. There are 
crates, box loads of pottery and ceramic fragments that are archaeologists. Mm-hmm. I've been in the Beth Shemesh uh, IAA, Israel Antiquity Authority Storage Facility, just a few miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem. That is a huge warehouse. It's filled from the roof to the seat, to the floor to the roof, and then they, they had to put everything out in the parking lot. And the, and these are uh, bone boxes, ossuaries, uh, hundreds of them, and uh, other pieces of pottery, and on and on it goes. And of course, excavations continue that demonstrate that the Old Testament narrative is, in fact, an, an accurate report of things that really did happen and not a bunch of fairy tales. And so this work is simply overwhelming. That's part of the problem. It is handy that we're in the computer age and we have databases that continue to grow and are updated. But our work, in a sense, we've only done a drop in the bucket. Uh, We will be busy with this, uh, God willing, permitting for uh, literally centuries centuries out of these 500,000 pages that Jeremiah referred to a few minutes ago, only about 10% have been published and we've been working at it for 130 years. So that gives you an idea, you know, this job is not going to be uh, completed anytime soon. And it's exciting, too, um, when you talk about the Qumran caves um, that are being discovered as well. Yeah. So some of the people listening um, would, I'm sure, would like to ask you for a very simple, your your take on John chapter 8 and Mark chapter 16. Mm -hmm. Could you, could you just comment on those? Yeah, these are two uh, passages uh, in most uh, New Testaments. The John passage uh, begins at 7.53 and goes to 8.11, 12 verses. And then we find in our oldest manuscripts of John, and there are at least three very old ones, that it just goes from 7.52 to 8.12. So those 12 verses simply aren't there. And so we look at the language and we notice there's some grammar, there's some vocabulary that just doesn't show up elsewhere in John. And so most scholars think, you know, it's probably an authentic story of Jesus, but it probably wasn't part of the original Gospel of John. And don't forget, at the end of John, it says Jesus did many other things which aren't written in this book. So it's possible that a scribe at some point said, well, this is one that should never have been left out. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, that same story of the woman accused of uh, adultery and, and people were asking Jesus, should she be stoned? Uh, it actually shows up in the Gospel of Luke and right. some other Greek New Testaments. So that's one example. And then there's the other example, and it's disputed. Some think it is genuine, original part of Mark 16. Some think, no, it's probably later. I honestly don't know because that ending is talked about in the second century, so that's mm. pretty early. But our two complete copies of Mark, which are excellent manuscripts, the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus, both of them don't have it. They they end at Mark 16, 8, the women are afraid. They didn't tell anyone for they were afraid. So that one's a question mark. But here's the interesting thing. We're talking about 27 books in the New okay. Testament. Mm-hmm. And we have two passages that we're not sure about. And the John one is probably a genuine story, but probably not part of John. The Mark one, even if we conclude it's not genuine to Mark, contains nothing that's not taught elsewhere. 
So at, mm. at, so in a sense, you can say, you choose, keep them or leave them out. Nothing is changed doctrinally. And for 27 books from antiquity, I know something about other books from antiquity. Uh, you, can't, you can't find 27 books from antiquity where you don't have uh, a, a problem like that. In most cases, we're missing a, th a third. We're missing a quarter of the entire text. We, we have whole chunks where it's scrambled and we just don't know uh, how it reads. There's nothing like that in the Greek New Testament. Well, and let's not get too bent out of shape about it either, Dr. Morgan, because, and this is such a great question, I mean, think of the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Let's remember the words of our Lord that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, that doesn't show up anywhere in the yeah. canonical gospels, and yet we have it right there from the Apostle Paul. So we see other stories, other teachings of Jesus that pop up in the New Testament, even though they're not recorded in the gospels. Oh, I have so many other questions. Um, is the Ryland fragment the earliest fragment we have. And when I say Ryland fragment, that is a popular mm -hmm. title, but there's more, a, a more specific way of cataloging it, isn't there? Mm -hmm. I, I've read about it, and I know that is probably what people have heard about. The earliest uh, fragment of the New Testament is that bit of John. Uh, but am I accurate in even mm -hmm. the way that I asked the question? Yeah. Uh, yes, you are. Very the uh, The Manchester Library gives it its own accession number, mm -hmm. 457. Uh, Greek, but uh, it's official in the in the Greek New Testament criticism world. It's called uh, P52, that Gothic uh, German Gothic letter P. And by the way, these numbers are just assigned in the order of discovery. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I'm, this might date me a little bit, Robert. But when I was in seminary, we were at P79. And uh, that's as far up as we are. We're now at P139. So uh, we've added uh, whatever that is, 60 papyri to the list. And I'm told there are a few more that will be announced in the next couple of years. So it just keeps growing. So maybe by the time I'm at the end of my life, we'll be talking about P, you know, 189. But these are the uh, typically the oldest fragments of the New Testament. Most of them are fragmentary, just a few verses. So P52 gives us a little bit of John 18, verses 31 to 37 front side, back side, which makes it possible for us to know exactly where it would fit on a page. But but uh, P64, three fragments of Matthew 26, um, they date maybe 180. It's just give or take a decade or two. It's real hard. The, the dating can be controversial. But P52 could well be before 150. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, I know you, you, go, uh, you go to... Manchester to the Rylands, and it'll say, you know, dates 125. In fact, I think, uh, mm -hmm. Jeremiah, you were there one time, and they actually misidentified the chapter. They no, did. They said I have a was, picture of it. Yeah, it's they, quite humorous. <laughs> they said it was John 17. Yeah. Oops, no, 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 it's John 18. <laughs> but, uh, and then there are, there are a few others. I had the privilege when I was in uh, Geneva a few years ago, at the Bodmer uh, Library, I was able to see P66, and that's a nearly complete copy of the Gospel of John. It could date as early as 190, right at the end of the second century. And you know what's fascinating? We have a whole bunch of early copies of John, and do you realize there is not one word difference? 
in the opening 18 verses, the most famous from a theological mm -hmm. point of view, the weightiest mm -hmm. theology in the Gospels would be the first 18 verses of John. And I, you get all of our early copies of John in Greek, set them side by side. They all read the same way. There's not even a letter difference. That's extraordinary mm -hmm. for, for early books. Well, one, one last question, and then I especially want to uh, ask uh, Jeremiah, if you will just guide us through how we can find out everything mm -hmm. we can yeah. about Dr. Craig Evans and where we can find his books. But would you give me your idea as to the order, the chronological order of the composition of the four Gospels? Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> I, I, <clears throat> I am a, a traditionalist in a sense that uh, I, I favor mark and priority, but I also have high respect for what the church father Papias says. I know in one place Eusebius, and he has his reasons for it, 200 years later he throws Papias under the bus because of his eschatology, and I get it. But uh, <clears throat> I take Papias very seriously, and he talks about how Mark is written down, uh, the Gospel of Mark is written down from the teaching of Peter, and he says it's not in order. And a lot of interpreters have not understood that correctly. He doesn't mean it's out of chronological order. It means it hasn't been edited and polished. And in my view, this is the source. It's a Petrine source. It's the teaching of Peter written down by Mark, which the three synoptic writers used, Matthew, mm -hmm. Mark, and Luke. So I, that may, puts me in the category of what they call proto-Mark. And so there was this real early draft that was apostolic that the three evangelists used. So I still think Mark is closest uh, in terms of how it was originally stated based on Peter. And then Matthew and Luke uh, have edited that and expanded it greatly, tapping into a whole bunch of Jesus's teaching that had not been included in Mark. Yeah, every, every time I listen, I think of more questions that I, <laughs> I want to, um, to ask you. And the one that I just wanted to ask you has completely gone out of my mind. I'm, my mind is, is whirling. Uh, with what you've said. But uh, let's wrap it up here, Jeremiah. Tell us, uh, let, let's find out where everybody can become just immersed in, uh, in, in this book and all of these resources that are available. Absolutely, Dr. Morgan, if you think of it, just, just holler at me, because um, I know what you're thinking. I know, I know I've been there as well. Um, Craig Evans' website is a great place to start, which is craigaevans.com. And be sure you do the A um, in the middle of that, craigaevans.com. I would encourage you to check him out on YouTube as well. Um, he's been featured on my own podcast, if you don't mind me mentioning, the oh, Jeremiah absolutely. Johnston Show. So you can check out our podcast. Uh, Dr. Evans and I have done new numerous programs. We've done the best in biblical archaeology. We even did a live show with two other archaeologists, which was fantastic. So check that out. But definitely, and thank you so much for allowing us to mention his new book, Jesus yeah. and the Manuscripts, because yeah. this is such an exciting book. And if you're a pastor, and if you're a serious student of the Bible, if you're a Sunday school teacher, get this book in your library. Um, always be increasing your library, uh, Christian friends. We should always be adding to our library, ever learning. Um, and so friends, I want to encourage you to do that. And Dr. Evans, any other spots I may have missed? I know you're on social media as well. Any other places that uh, people could check you out um, if they wanted to know more information? 
Well, um, I, I, it's embarrassing me f for me to say I don't keep up much with my own social media. I have experts that do that for me, but I'm always astonished at the stuff that shows up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess you can find me there. And I watch out, though, for the cranks. I think there's yeah. some people out there that grab stuff and misuse it. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of media out there. It's really strange. I have been in 100 documentaries and news programs. And uh, and then uh, uncount. I can't count the number of blogs. Yeah, and I might mention, if you don't mind, Doctor yeah. Morgan. I don't want to date this again, but with everything happening right now in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and all the questions about the Taliban, Doctor Evans and I co-authored a book uh, called "Jesus and the Jihadis: Confronting the Rage of mm -hmm. ISIS." And I we do a deep dive in into aspects that again have come to the forefront uh, that we need to know as followers of Jesus. Uh, so I might just mention that resource as well. So while I have you here, I, before, we, before we finish, I wanna see what you think of my theory. Um, I believe that Luke wrote the gospel during the two years when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, and he wrote the book of Acts during the two years when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. So just as a sign off, would you, would you give thumbs up or thumbs down to, to my theory? I give you a thumbs up. I think you're very right. Um, <clears throat> I have given a lot of thought about when Acts was written. As you know, there are some who say, oh, Acts was probably written in the 80s or 90s, uh, or even later. I've, had, I've seen uh, some scholars even argue as late as 120 AD. I find that extraordinarily unlikely. Papias, I believe, knew of Acts. Papias was writing before then. Mm -hmm. But the thing that really uh, convinces me of the early date for Luke and Acts is Luke loves to tie the Jesus story and the story of the church to events mm -hmm. in, the, in the Roman world. Yeah. How in the world he pass up, for example, the fire in Rome in the year 64? Mm -hmm. He doesn't even mention the death of James in 62. Yeah. How does he, he, he yeah. you know, he mentions the murder of James, the son of Zebedee. How would he pass up mm. on the murder of James, the Lord's brother, who was leading the church in Jerusalem right. after Peter left? How does he pass up on the martyrdom of Paul and Peter in 65? How about the break, outbreak of war in 66, the, mm. the war of liberation in Israel? How does he pass up on Nero's suicide in 68? And the crazy stuff that followed that, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, everybody trying to succeed Nero. And then Vespasian claims the throne. And then his son Titus captures Jerusalem in 70 and the temples burned down. He misses all of that? And don't forget, Vesuvius blows its stack in 79. And he's writing, what, in the 80s, 90s? This would have been an opportunity to talk about fulfilled prophecy as well as just current events. And Luke mentions none of that. And so I think, I think, I do agree. I think mm -hmm. um, Paul is in, in Rome, probably in the year 62 under house arrest. James hasn't died yet. Luke doesn't know anything mm -hmm. about that. And he writes what probably is a first draft or maybe even the complete draft of what we call the book of Acts. Wow. This has been one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had around this round table here in this, this Oxford-like setting. Dr. Craig Evans, thank you so much. Uh, Jeremiah, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, thank you for bringing us together. Absolutely. And so we will follow your, I'm gonna get that book. I'm gonna encourage everybody to get it as well as your new, uh, new book and everything you guys publish will be on my reading list. 
Thank you so much. God bless you. And may the Lord be with all of you until we meet again.